Hi there, everyone. I'm Gwen Jones, and welcome once again to the I'm Ruitarian podcast, the weekly podcast where I introduce you to amazing people that proudly call themselves Rotarians. Well, this week, everything's coming up roses. That's right. Wade Nomura is going to tell me all about this year's Pasadena Rose Bowl Parade and the amazing Rotary Float that will participate in it. Now, there's a lot of Rotarians that have worked an extra long time literally gluing seeds to this amazing float, and Wade's going to tell us all about it, and about him being an author, and about him being just an amazing Rotarian. Oh, and Mayor, too. Hint, hint. So join me, won't you? Wade Nomura is bringing everything up roses today on the podcast. And as always, thank you for joining me. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. Wade Nomura is here to join me this week. And if you don't know who Wade is, I have like an entire piece of paper next to me at my desk filled with all the things that Wade is. Wade is an author. He's a past governor. He works with the Pets Alliance. He's the tech advisor. Oh, gosh, look at this. He does the uh, water projects. He works with the Rotary Foundations. He's working with Hand Washing in Haiti. Oh, by the way, he's also an author. Oh, and by the way, he's the guy who runs our Rotary float in the Rose Bowl Parade. And he's given me about a half hour to 45 minutes to talk to him. And he has all of that information. You think we can do it? Let's give it a try. Wade, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining me. <laughs> well, very, very thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Now, I, I butchered all of those things that you told me you were ahead of. So just give me the list. Give me the list again for our listeners of exactly <laughs> who you are. So we know you're an author. Okay. So you're uh, an author. I just recently finished writing a book called Creating Destiny. Yeah. Okay. It's a biography. Then- yeah. So then as far as Rotary goes, because that's personal life is, is author. So as far as Rotary goes, give me your list again. I would say the uh, biggest part of my time is spent doing uh, Rotary Foundation grants. I'm a technical coordinator of cadres. So working with uh, global grants around the world, humanitarian projects, specializing, first of all, in water and sanitation, but then moving into different areas also. I'm also a coordinator for the North American region of all of the other um, advisors with that one and work uh, worldwide probably do about i'm going to guess uh 50 to 100 different global grant project evaluations a year see catch up with wade there rest of the rotarians I tell <laughs> <laughs> and so we're gonna we're gonna dabble on all those including the one that you pointed out to me just before we went on that you're working on a Hand washing and sanitation uh, development in Haiti, which sounds like an amazing process. But we do have some basic questions that I want to start with. And before we get into the book, and before we get into the Rose Bowl parade, how did you get involved with Rotary? How did how did you become a Rotarian? Actually, uh, that's a good story in itself. Um, <laughs> I had never planned on getting into Rotary. You know, one day my wife came home, my late wife uh, came back and she says, we're starting a new club. I go, what's the club? She says, it's a Rotary club. I go, well, you know, not interested. No, no, thank you. She goes, well, we need 20, 25 people to sign up right. to, so we could charter this club. Um, I said, well, if you have a hard time, I'll, I'll consider it. But seriously, I, says, I don't have time. 
at that time, I was chairing eight or involved with and chairing most of the eight different organizations uh, in, in the area. So I literally did not have time. Well, she came home one day, said, you know what? We are stuck at 24. We cannot get the 25th signature. So if you would sign on this and we could charter this club. So uh, yeah, needless to say, I, I, I fell for it. I, I signed on the dotted line, making me the 25th uh, member to sign that one. And that evening, uh, they were, we actually charted in, sent in the application with uh, three, four names on it. So he got me good, good on that one. Uh, that got me started. Um, I really didn't know what Rotary was, but one day, probably two years into Rotary, I was asked by a president if I would be willing to go to Mexico with a group of two to actually initiate a water project there. Um, I'm bilingual, my trade is landscape contractor, so I had the experience to it. So that's what I did. I went to Mexico thinking I was getting a free ride by Rotary. As I got there, I found out that I had to do all of the, uh, quote, heavy lifting. I had to negotiate <laughs> land lease, find the place and location where that was going to be done, look for uh, maintenance agreements, all of the above, and have that project done within one year. I had literally five days to get the project initiated. So uh, that did it. One year later, we went back. It was completed. The big hook for me was uh, when the community came out, the community came in full force. There was a whole probably 60 of the 124 people that lived in this village. And the gentleman came over and shook my hand and thank you for my own life. Wow. So from then on, it's been nothing but Rotary. I dropped everything and became a Rotarian, literally, to do projects around the world and to help people out. So then it makes sense, the long list that you gave me from, you know, Haiti <laughs> to the foundation, to the water projects, to the... You got hooked and uh, I got hooked. <laughs> well, and it's funny that you say that that your your wife, you know, got your excuse me, your late wife and, and my condolences um, got you involved with it. And, and I, I remember my story where I had a friend that said, I want to come for a glass of wine. He didn't even tell me it was a rotary club. He said, come for a glass of wine. I'll buy you a glass of wine. And, and before I knew it, I was in rotary. So what what year did your did your wife Shanghai you into? How many years ago was that now? Two thousand two, we chartered our club. Okay, yeah. and so, so you've been a around charter for member. almost almost twenty years exactly. So um, we ended up uh, the last I think uh, six years, four times we ended up at the, as the best club in the district. So we've been fairly active as a club. Wow. Well, awesome. That is awesome. And so is that club so. So then you've been at that one club the whole time. You haven't really moved around that, is, that, that spot. That is correct. No, I have not. Um, I've actually chartered six new clubs, actually eight new clubs. My apologies. Um, and two of them were internet, four of them were international clubs. So um, worked around the, the world, putting in projects and then starting clubs. It's been a good thing. So then what has been so and this is one of our favorite questions that we get emails about then because you've chartered so many clubs and you've traveled so many clubs is there a is there what it what and i guess a lot of people call it their it moment is there an inspirational moment that you can think of in all of these travels and all these clubs that when you go back and you think about it it brings a smile to your face and it's like that's why i'm still doing it after all these years <laughs> Because of no, life. Glenn, that's that's a very good question. I've actually had the opportunity of visiting over 500 clubs, and I will wow. t 
tell you that the interesting part is I don't have a single wow moment that stood, stands out for any of the clubs. I've enjoyed each and every club. Every club has their own personality, their uniqueness. Some are, um, I would say, more apt. Some are more lively. Some mm -hmm. are, are more business-like. But they all bring a special part of that one. And I think uh, as a Rotarian, you get to pick a club that fits your personality, that fits your needs. I think that's right. the most important one. There's no perfect club. And there really isn't. Everybody, uh, a perfect club is one that fits you. And there's 1.2 million members with, you know, looking so, for that special club. And we've, been, we've talked about this on a couple other shows that during COVID, we've actually had a bump up in clubs because of these Zoom clubs and these e-clubs. Do you think that the silver lining of COVID has been some of these e-clubs because they actually fit more people's idea of clubs? I mean, you're saying that there isn't the perfect club, but is a Zoom club kind of an idea that's better or do? There, there is definitely the advantage of having that. Uh, that opened up a new horizon that we really didn't, when I say we, Rotary really didn't anticipate or see this happening. We've had e-clubs around for quite a while, but those e-clubs kind of come and go because they're competing with the traditional clubs, the geographic yeah. clubs. Um, one of the challenges I think Rotary faced, and I think this is going to change, is the fact that they kind of created a model that stayed geographic in location. You could uh, not expand out to an international level. Now with the Zoom, you could be anywhere in the world but be a member of a club. Now, um, geography plays less of a role. More importantly, it has to do with the purpose and focus that that club wants to achieve and attain. So and I, I think, it definitely is a benefit. Yeah, and I think I think we forget sometimes. I think, especially in North America, that we are a world club. You yeah. know that that we are, and and that actually makes us quite unique to be such a world focused uh, civics organization. And yet, sometimes in North America, we kind of have our blinders on. And I think Zoom has just kind of went, "Hey, I, I think I'll check out what a Rotary Club in Paris is like." Or a Correct. Rotary Club in, right. you know, I went to a Rotary meeting in Melbourne, Australia. It was nice. cool. Yeah. It was yeah. like, wow. Been to a few of those. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Nice. <laughs> it was, I was in the past. They were in the future, but it was still really cool. <laughs> <laughs> there is one thing we did in our club that's fairly unique. I think it's the only, actually, I know it's the only uh, model in the world currently where our club actually has what we call a chapter club that um, we meet in California, Southern California. Our name of our club is... Uh, Carpenter Morning Rotary Club, but we have a satellite that actually meets in Antigua, Guatemala once a week also. Wow. And we, the two of us get together. There are 12 members, I think, in Antigua that meet with us. We will exchange. We go online, do the Zoom thing. It's a hybrid variety along with the regular meeting. They do the same. So we meet Wednesday morning. They meet Friday morning. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Do projects all over the place. <laughs> and I think it's it's actually gonna. I, I, it would not surprise me if it if it makes us actually grow. I mean, we, we're having some growth spurts in on some different continents. The continent of Africa seems to have a huge growth spurt. India's having Correct. a growth spurt. Yep. And it would not surprise me that even here in the United States, we I know that one of our mutual friends, Tom Gump, has just been making e clubs right, left, and sideways. I mean, exactly. Yeah. And not only with these e-clubs, it seems that we have these themed e-clubs as well, which are becoming mm -hmm. quite interesting. So, yeah, I'm, Correct. I'm looking forward to it. So you said you were an author, you you underachiever, you. I want to know about <laughs> a Creative Destiny. Tell me about your book and why'd you write it? 
uh, Creating Destiny. Originally, I started writing the book as a memoir for my children and future generations to read. So you can find a, a little glimpse of what it was like in their ancestry. As they started writing it, uh, my wife, uh, Debbie, actually says, you got to write this for the world. So um, we started, I wrote it, did about 700 pages of manuscript. She took that and created the book out of it. And so the book itself talks about my formative years, uh, my youth as a Japanese American and growing up in the shadows of World War II uh, under discrimination. My parents both uh, were interned in uh, post in Arizona during the war time. So mm -hmm. they were interned there. Um, after that, they came to Santa Barbara to live. Uh, starts that way. Then it goes into um, my background, my health, my heritage, my culture, what I learned from the Japanese group and why I'm a landscaper today. Go into now different parts about it and why I did certain things. And I put Creating Destiny because the book itself talks about things that I had never planned on doing. But all of a sudden, I was put in a position to where I could do something about it. As an example, um, uh, I designed and built my own BMX bike, became a five-time national champion and a Hall of Famer for something where I was trying to help children out get out of the slums. Wow. So, wow. so that was one project. <laughs> um, Rotary's put me a long way. I've been able to work around probably close to 200 projects around the world now, benefiting people. So that's always been a good one. And also um, current my current position in my community, because I put a lot of time into what I call, quote, my paradise. My paradise is a place where, as anybody lives, as you live, you know, mm -hmm. on the island there, Wherever you live, you put down your roots because you consider that your paradise. But in right. order to keep it paradise, you have to invest in that one. So I'm currently serving as the mayor of the city of Carpinteria with that same reason. I want to make sure that we um, are able to protect our, our culture, our heritage, and our community, but let it grow enough to where it's going to evolve into something and not get caught behind. So we've right. done a pretty good job of that one. Um, it's a very small beach town. But um, the, the field's all there, and it's a very tight-knit group. Yeah. Wow. And, and you know, it's, it's funny. You, you mentioned your, your parents, unfortunately, a, a dark time in our history were in an internment camp. Do you think that their experience there somehow, did they raise you to be this go-getter? I mean, I'm being very sarcastic in, in a loving way when I tell you, you know, that it's like, you fit me in today in between 20 things that you're doing today and all this achievements. Is this, is this a push from your parents? Is this something that it's always been in your family to go out and create your own reality for you no know, other reason? That, and that's a very good question. Um, one of the things that I think influenced me was um, I am the firstborn son of the firstborn son. I was uh, destined, literally destined in my culture to lead my family, to be the leader of the family. And I think and knowing that from a very young age, probably as a four or five-year-old, my grandfather took me in and he started teaching me facts of life. And I think that was probably the biggest thing. One of the lessons he taught me was as a four-year-old, I think four or five-year-old, he was a gardener for Avery Brundage, the um, past president of the, of the Olympics. Um, he took care of his estate in Montecito. And one day he took me, he says, well, you know, the boss is coming back, but I want to have you take a look at the work that I do taking care of his estate. So he mm -hmm. took me out there and the place was immaculate. It was a huge estate, um, massive. And he goes, what do you see? And we walked over there and the place is beautiful. So as we left, he goes, I want you to look back. He goes, I want you to look very carefully. What do you see in the garden? 
I says, it's impeccable. I says, every hedge is perfectly square. There's not a leaf out of place. There's no weeds out there. There's nothing. And even the gravel and the dirt had rake marks in it with a form. I says, it's, it's, it's impeccable. I don't see anything better. He goes, that's your first lesson for the day. He goes, the lesson is wherever you go, whatever you do, you always leave it better than you found it. So that was, uh, it was life-changing for me when he gave me that lesson. So I, I, I live by that. Yeah. He sounds like an incredible guy. And it, so it's almost your, it's almost preordained this working in, in landscaping and in, you know, to make the world beautiful. Like you're, you, you are a second generation beautician of the world in a way. Is that, is that a safe way to say? That's a good way to look at it. There's a second lesson that also shows up in the book and that is uh, accepting adversity. Um, he told me, he goes, in, in life, he goes, you're going to be discriminated against because you're Japanese. Uh, people are going to hate you just because of who you are. But he mm-hmm. goes, always embrace that because they're not going to change you. You have to remain that person. You have to be able to deal with adversity and look always for the positive. So um, I told you when my late wife died, she died of pancreatic cancer. Um, I figured I was devastated. Didn't know how to recover from that one. Um, so I buried myself in Rotary, literally. And mm. if it weren't for me burying myself in Rotary, I would have never found a wife that I'm living with now, uh, Debbie. Yeah. Sues. She, she's been a godsend for me. But he told me, he goes, you have two things in life, two ways in life you could live it. He goes, if you dealt something negative, the two choices you have is that you could look at it, wonder why the heck it happened to you, and just let it eat you up. It's going to change your life. It's going to be something where you're always going to be bitter about because you were the unlucky one to have this happen to you. Didn't happen to anybody else. It happened to you. He goes, your second choice is this. He goes, you could learn by that mistake. It could be the worst thing that ever happened to you, but how could you have made that better? How will you make that better? He says, because you can live with it till it eats you up and you'll never change it. Or you could take the positive road, go, hey, it happened to me. I can't change it but I could learn from that and I could move forward in a positive direction. So that was his second lesson to me. And that was another one that <laughs> I've had to live by. Yeah. You said, you sound like it. He sounded like an incredible man. And I, I think <laughs> he was, I, thank you. <laughs> I, I think one thing that's very interesting over the last, I'll just have to say the last four to five years, um, there has been a, uh, well, it's, there's been an exquisite amount of violence against our uh, uh, Asian community, and for no real reason. <laughs> but um, has that backbone of your grandfather has that helped in these times where just because you may look like you come, you know, I mean, we're talking people from the Philippines or people from Asia or people from, you know, anybody who looks just a little bit like they could be of Asian descent or from China or something like that. They've actually been attacked these last couple of years. So how is, you know, and we, we've talked on this, on this program with um, Brian Rush and, and uh, Nadine Pemberton from our diversity, you know, has, has have you had a reason to use your grandfather's backbone these last couple of of years or living in California you've been blessed not to have that no it, it's even happened in California and uh, 
as I told you, I was brought up uh, right after the war. So we faced a lot of discrimination early in life. I always realized that, you know, that we were different. It wasn't until I actually saw discrimination was when I started school. And when I started school uh, in kindergarten, uh, there were 28 students and I was the only minority. It was an all white school. And because of that, I couldn't why I was always isolated out. I didn't fit because mm-hmm. I see them, but I don't, I'm not looking in a mirror. I don't see myself to right. see the differences of me. So that was a hardship in itself. And it, it became a point to where I just had to accept it, that I was different. And because I was different, when I was in grammar school, I was always the last pick. Nobody wanted me because I was the oddball out. And I knew that that was kind of the case. When my friends would get together, we'd go out and play sports after school. We'd go back and uh, they would go to a friend's, one of the friend's houses. And I go, well, could I come with you guys? I say, you guys always take off and hang out. And he goes, well, no, you can't because uh, there's no Japanese kids allowed in our houses. So you're going to have wow. to stay outside if you do come. So I never went and um, realized that that was going to be the way life was through grammar school. When I went into junior high school, <laughs> something changed. Um, again, it's probably an Asian thing, but um, I grew six inches in three months over summertime. <laughs> and I went wow. from the little short fat kid, all of a sudden that was a superstar. So when I started junior high school, I was the biggest, strongest, fastest kid out there. And because of that, I went from last pick to now I was a team captain. That changed. Right. And so I realized, well, you know, I was looking at it, feeling sorry for myself because I was a minority, not realizing that, you know what, I was a short fat kid with not very much athletic ability. Right. Now that I have it, <laughs> that all went away. So I had yeah. to take a look at why certain people or what you have that's unique to you and what you have control over and don't have control over. My athletics, my athletic ability is something I had control over. My looks and my culture, I didn't have control over and I didn't Mm -hmm. want to lose that. So I learned to actually appreciate my culture and my heritage. Whereas in grammar school, I hated it. I always wanted to be like everybody else. Now as things change in current times, there are some instances where as an Asian, you don't want to stand out. But why hide it? You're an Asian. If there's Mm -hmm. going to be a hate crime put against you, Hopefully, you know, it's not going to happen. But if it does happen, it's a hate crime, literally. And it comes from somebody that's uneducated, somebody that has a grudge, somebody that's trying to outdo somebody else. And if you look at most of the instances, they're attacking the unarmed, basically the people that cannot do it. It's the elderly or the sick. I mean, they're picking a weak link. So it's pretty ridiculous. Ideally, heritage and culture change, but you're always going to have that one loose screw out there in that community. It's going to happen. Yeah. And I mean, I've just been them picking on Asia, maybe I'm picking on somebody else. In these instances, mostly right now, they're kind of focusing that direction. Yeah. And I, and I, I do appreciate that Rotary is trying so hard to be inclusive, but I, I challenge my listeners that when we say the word inclusive, that doesn't just mean black, white, gay, straight. In fact, that's, you know, that means people that are, you know, have uh, learning disabilities or are artistic family, autistic family, or are, you know, special needs in the way of being able to blind or handicap or Asian or different ethnicities that especially right now, you know, we're supposed to love our fellow man. So it sounds like an awesome book. And so this is where I say, where can our listeners get said book? Can we get it off of the old Amazon 
you know, world of Amazon or is there other places to get it? Actually, or? it's it's self it's self-published. I wanted to self-publish okay. it to have control over uh, what comes in because I put 10% of the book sales goes right into the Rotary Foundation. I mean, awesome. it's my heart. It's what I live for. So because of that, if uh, anybody's interested out there in actually finding the book, if you'd love to do that one, uh, it's wadenamura.com. It's just my Wade name, wadenamura.com. And you'll, it'll take you to a website and you could, you know, then be able to purchase the book there. I didn't put it through anybody else because I did want to have control on it. And I wanted to make sure that if somebody were to purchase this, they would actually have kind of a connection to me because it's uh, a story of my, of myself, my living in those lessons that we just talked about right now. They're going. Yeah. Awesome. Well then, then here's my, I do have one question was when you first, first described it, you said it was 700 pages in the transcript. Is it still 700 pages? About 240 pages. Okay. Right? We, had, we had okay. to condense it. And by the way, it does, it does include <laughs> pictures. Oh, <laughs> some okay. Of, some of the okay. pictures are of my landscape. Some of my history. Um, I don't know if I told you, but also part of it was uh, my BMX career. I spent yeah. uh, five years in, in BMX. And because of that one, I've got some racing pictures in there also. Oh, my God. It sounds awesome. Okay. So uh, wadenomura.com, you guys, go get out and get your copy. Um, I have one question that I always ask every week. It started off as 10 questions. And then through all these seasons, <laughs> there's like four or five that are that are like ones that everybody are, waits for. And it's turned into quite an interesting uh, task to find out about this one. And that is about the four-way test. And that is our quote unquote guiding principles of rotary. And what is, so what does the four-way task mean to you? Is it more esoteric? Is it something that you use every day? And then have you ever found yourself being a four-way test cop? Like you're not following the (laughs) four-way test. What does the four-way test mean to you? For me, actually, I, I live by it. Do, do everything that way. One of the reasons I'm there is because I, I believe in the four-way test, and that's how I try and uh, run my city the same way. I also bring that forward. When we are um, dealing with items, issues that may be controversial, I will always bring up the four-way test because a lot of times that will bring out the truth from those mm. people that are trying to sway you with a loaded question or a loaded statement. By bringing it forward as a four-way test with them understanding that, you know what, you can go ahead and not go by the four-way test and we will see somebody living by a lower standard, or you could come up and stand by a higher standard for yourself. And let's talk head to head. Let's just go straight up and see what exactly where we stand and have that understanding. I think that's mostly how I see using it. I have had the opportunity to, uh, actually uh, go to a district conference and the grandson of Herb Taylor, the one that wrote the four-way test, does a skit on it and he uh, impersonates his grandfather. It's a great skit. I really enjoyed it. it. Tells a lot about the history of the four-way test. Well, and, that, and I, you, cause you slipped it in there that you're the mayor of your town that you live in. So <laughs> I, I think we, when we think of the, of the four-way test, it's, it's a lot of I statements. I use it every day and I use it in my business or I feel, but the four-way test um, in your life actually affects other people's lives. Is that safe to say? Because so, so if your interpretation of the four-way test has circumstances and life-changing events for other people in your town. That is correct. And if Rotarians were to actually 
live by the four-way test. Most of them do, but have that understanding. It does create a type of person that is more likely to be successful and to be respected. And if that is the case, you as a Rotarian would be able to then have other people seeking that same level, that same level of respect, that same level of integrity. Because unfortunately, those two points are one of the hard ones that we don't see very much of these days. Not very many of us live by the integrity or um, you know, the ethics that we used to live by before, uh, which is unfortunate. But you look at Rotarians, they do. And that's why I think it's an important message to convey to those people in the communities that, and by the way, I am a mayor of my city because I was approached and said I would never run for politics. Mm -hmm. um, they finally talked me into it with the one point, and this was four groups that approached me, four interest groups. The last group came over to me, go, I asked them, why do you want me to run for, you know, for council? Their answer was, because you're Rotarian. You're the hardest worker that we see. You have wow. the highest ethical standards and you have more integrity than anybody else that lives in this community. For that reason, we want you to run for city council and represent us. I went on to become mayor because of that uh, support that I had. But they were the ones and they weren't Rotarians that told me that. I think that's an important lesson to learn. And if we're going to move forward with this one, that's the personality. That's the type of people we want to represent or become. Yeah, it's like, okay, we can end now. Just drop the mic. That was good. <laughs> but, so, so here's one of the, just one more touch on the four-way test. And it's one that I always try and like, try and get some information out of people, but they don't necessarily, I don't want to say agree, but get it. And that's when I said, is it, is it fair to, to all concern is uh, one of the second lines. And fair to all concern, as I know my listeners have heard me say, doesn't always mean you get your way. So as mayor, is that something that you've embraced? Because fair to all concerns may not be exactly what you think is the right thing for your town, but it's fair for the situation at the time. I mean, have you ever had to make that kind of? Always, always. Uh, my job, the way I look at it as being mayor or anybody on city council being a decision maker, a policymaker, is that you cannot have an agenda. You always have to take a look at what's going to be best for the city and work in that direction. True, some people are going to be, well, get a little bit more benefit. Some may not. That's why you're going to have the, the conflict, the controversies. But right. if you look at the overall picture on the policy and decision that you're making in the long run to see if it actually is going to benefit the city, that's your answer right there. Um, I always tell people that ask me to go, what do you think on this? What's your opinion of this? I go, I have no opinion. And I have no opinion because I don't have the privilege to have an opinion. My job specifically <laughs> is to be as open-minded as possible and to look at all scenarios, all outcomes, and see if, in fact, there's something that I don't see that would sway me or change it to benefit our city. So that's that's the way I look at policymaking. Wow. And I, and I know Rotarians are technically not uh, uh, government, you know, we are non-religious and non-political uh, associates, but that doesn't mean that you cannot be a political person and <laughs> be right. a Rotarian. We have a lot of politicians that are Rotarians. Oh, that's a good from one. From all sides of the ask. Uh, yeah, that's about from all sides. That's I right. Would say. By the way, so, when they did ask me if I'd run, I said, no way, I don't believe in politics. I'm a Rotarian. 
And they go, well, you know, have you been voting in the past? I go, I didn't even vote. I said, I didn't believe in voting because I didn't believe in the policy or the process. But uh, since becoming city council, I think I'm voting a little bit more now. There you go. <laughs> well, you know, you have to change. Everybody has to be a part Correct. of it. There you go. Correct. Exactly. Well, I can't let you go in your busy day without talking about how I was first in, in introduced <laughs> to you. Our dear friend, uh, Tom Gump, who's been on the show. Uh, if you guys check out his Facebook page, because he will show off his bright yellow rotary jacket for the Rose Bowl parade. And I'm not sure if the Rotarians all around the world that hears me, that are hearing me right now, knows what the Rose Bowl parade is. If you don't look it up, people, it is one of the oldest New Year's Day parade, if not the oldest. Is it? Is it's not older than Macy's? Is it? Is is it older than? I believe it is. Um, let's see. We just had the 125th anniversary of that one. So it, it's been there a while. Okay. So the Rose Bowl Parade is New Year's Day. And if you are a West Coast boy or girl like I was, I actually slept on Colorado Boulevard as a teenager <laughs> to uh, wake up the next day to have floats that, and I and Wade, correct me if I'm wrong, that if I remember correctly, at least 60% of the float has to be covered in some type of organic material. Is that correct? That is correct. Actually, it's more than 60%. It's, it's just about 100%. The only ones that are not allowed are things that you can't do, like a, a safety strap or something like that. Okay, so it does so, have to be covered in organics. And so Tom is one of the helpers at this year's right. Rotary float for the Rose Bowl Parade. And that's about as much as an intro as I can get. Tell us about this float. <laughs> and I'll tell my listeners, if they're coming from another country, Google it. Google the Rose Bowl Parade. You'll love it. It's awesome. But tell us about our float. The float uh, this year is going to be an owl uh, representing um, learning, learning and education, one of the uh, seven areas of focus. So um, it's going to highlight that. We will have the international president riding on the float uh, along with a few other people. Some of them pay their way. Others of them are representing um, different districts. Uh, Tom is out there giving a shot. He's uh, one of our ambassadors right now. Each ambassador goes into a drawing and uh, he has the opportunity of possibly being one of the riders on the float also, which is wow. on many people's bucket list. Um, the parade route itself is about uh, six miles. It's five miles plus the front, front and back, so about six miles. Goes for about two hours from start to end of it. We stage them, and don't tell Tom this, you know, and Tom, don't listen, cover your ears. We start, <laughs> so we start about four o'clock in the morning uh, yeah. staging people in because we have to get through all of the traffic barriers. Once we're on site, we have to be there by 5 30, 6 o'clock, because um, that's when we stage into the float itself. The float costs, uh, they're 35 feet long. They usually stand about 16 to 18 feet tall, and wow. they are 100% covered with organic matter. So whether it be seeds um, or flowers, it, it depends on how the design concept goes. You could see it on our um website uh, rotaryfloat.org uh, we okay. keep that one posted up there you can see the progress of it those people that are going to be riding on it each year um, and believe it or not it's funded by a committee that we put, go out there and we fundraise the work so that's why we have ambassadors helping us out they purchase in for those opportunities we charge for walkers and riders uh, but the float itself project 
is probably about two hundred to two hundred fifty thousand dollars, of which um, a very small portion of that comes from Rotary International. Most of it's all fundraised privately by our members and by those that uh, wish to support us. And we do it each and every year. Uh, We've done it for over forty years now, so um, it's been very successful and it's a lot of fun. Uh, and and I was lucky enough to be sent the website to sign up to work on it. I unfortunately have to go see my grandson in Colorado, but I would love to decorate it, but it is decorated by Rotarians. Is that correct? Like that is, putting that is on correct. those seeds and those flowers and those. So it, it takes please. the entire month of December to, to decorate that float. So, so you can I assume that you've got to do like the seeds first, but, and then is there like a mad dash at the end? Because flowers, I mean, we've all had flowers in our vases at home. They don't stay more than very good. The flowers go on the last week of. Okay. Uh, Before that time we do the flowers, the dry arrangements, things like that. Um, We even do processing. So for example, if there's a, a color white that we need to have pasted on there, we will have volunteers literally with cuticle scissors cutting out white off of a flower to create small jars and those actually go on the float so some people have to grind uh, grind some of the um, seeds berries things like that to create a powder that we could then apply to it also so it's definitely time consuming it's i think four thousand hours something like that volunteer time well i'm 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 penciling myself in for next year for sure (laughs) um and and so these ambassadors so is that it? so? Just in case I have somebody who's listening who's who's interested in being a part of it, are you willing to give us the secret sauce? If I wanted to be an ambassador, what does it cost to be an ambassador? If you go to the website, literally, that that would be where you find the information from. We have two different types of ambassadors, and we only accept a hundred total each year. Wow. Um, you could be an individual ambassador who you receive, as Tom did, uh, the coat, the jacket. And you become a representative of the float process uh, committee in different areas around the country, around the world. That's one of them. Uh, for that $500, it also gives you a raffle ticket or a drawing ticket where we will pull one of the winners um, to actually be a rider on that float. So that's the, one of the advantages of that one. The second part is a club ambassador. And for the $500, instead of getting the jacket and a lot of um, the hat, those kind of things, you actually get a club banner showing your support of a float, uh, along with some pins, uh, the rotary pins that are for the float itself. And a club will also get a drawing for one of their members to, to go into uh, drawing to be a rider. And so, how much is that one? How much is the club one? Five, 500 also. So they're both $500. They're okay, both $500. And is it still possible? to be a, a club for this year too. Okay. And, and you I bet. did go to you the, bet. I did go to the website and for the record, everybody, I do have a, a, uh, a baseball cap in my basket as we speak, there's some really <laughs> cool stuff. And it, it, you know, as far as rotary goes, we have kind of the, the hats that everybody knows the polio plus hats or, you know, something with the wheel on it, but to have one from the Rose bowl, I have to admit it's, it's, uh, I'm I'm going to wear it proudly for sure, and it, so from the hats and different things, those monies go to go to the, the float construction. Well. Exactly, okay. they do, and that's one of the reasons why it's a fundraiser. 
And some people ask, why do we do the flood every year? And what's what's mm-hmm. the significance of it? Because it only lasts a short window of time, basically. Right. You know, we're only on for the two hours. We're lucky if we get a you know one minute, two minute segment on that one. But it actually reaches um, the parade itself reaches over 40 million people. Wow. And looking at it that way, it is Rotary's largest PR campaign because we are reaching that many people. What we've done as a committee now is we are also highlighting the individual ambassadors or club ambassadors. They'll send that one in. If you look at that website, we are now highlighting individual people that are ambassadors and giving them the personal interest stories on what they've done specifically in the area of this year of basic education literacy. That's fantastic. So, so uh, like I said, my, my spot was taken to, to cut little white petals of flowers this year. So I will try again next year, but, but is it, how does it feel when you're sitting there on the grandstand and all of a sudden your float goes by? I have personally never been able to sit in the grandstands and watch it because I'm in charge yeah. of the walkers and riders. I spent okay. basically the whole weekend with Tom. With Tom. <laughs> okay, so, with so you and Tom, so if I'm looking at my television set, I'll look for you and Tom running around. Yeah, okay. you, you, well, you, exactly. Um, um, my personal task is I get the riders out there. I have a 12 passenger van, but I'm also the aide to the president each year. And so I, I because of that, um, I do all the shuffling. And because of the shuffling part of it, I will get the people to the start of the float, the, the parade route, but I also have to pick them up six miles away at the other <laughs> end of the parade route. In the meantime, when they're coming down, I have to run about a mile and a quarter to get to the site where I get pictures and video of the float as it comes by. Once it goes there, I'll run that mile and a quarter back to the van and then drive it all the way across to the other end of the town to pick them up. So that's why I never get to see the parade. <laughs> oh my God. So Shaker will be on the, on the float this he, year. Yes. yes. And so mm-hmm. this is going to be, it's gotta be quite an event for him. I know there are some fantastic festivals with flowers and all kinds of stuff in India, but have you talked to him? Is he excited about being on the float? He, he's definitely excited. Yeah. He's looking forward to it. Him and his uh, age coming. So we're going to have a, and spouses. So we're going to have a great time. We um, host them for about five days, take care of them. They get to do a lot of things. One of the biggest things, by the way, thanks for bringing that one up for giving me time. We cut, we, we do what's called the um, international president summit and mm. it's hosted by our committee, uh, the float committee. And this summit includes the international president of Rotary of Optimus of lions and Kiwanis. And wow. it used to be the only time they ever got together. When I say used to be, it wasn't until recent times that the presidents decided, let's start meeting more often. And it mm-hmm. all started because of the float committee doing that. So each year they get together, we host a special brunch for them, and they get, they're they given one hour private time, just the presidents, where they could discuss and talk about it. Um, that was now picked up by um, headquarters. And so in the spring, usually in April, they will now do the same thing. They will meet for a second time. That was one of the reasons why this last Last year, they did the COVID relief effort, all four right. groups. It was because of the summit. Congratulations. Also, oh, thank you. We're also working now on a service week where all four organizations will have all of the clubs go out and actually perform and plan to do a service project around the world. Now, imagine that, have all four organizations on the same week doing projects. At the same time. 
at the same time. Well, and I and I always think there seems to be a a battle of the of the I can top you, I can top you when it comes to service organizations that I that I never have understood. I mean, for it's it, it, it takes place in Rotary clubs for that matter. It's like <laughs> I'm not going to share with you. I'm going to do you know. To a point that I know here on the island, we have four clubs. And when we did our project assembly this year, we invited our morning club. We are the evening club. We invited the morning club and said, what of these projects do you want to help us with? And it was this, what? And I'm like, well, if we know we can do eight and you know you can do five or six or so, then that's, you know, that's like 14, 16 projects instead of eight. Exactly. (laughs) And imagine the impact that that had. Exactly. I mean, exactly. Yeah, it could be tenfold. So just imagine if it is the lions and the this and the that all getting together. Right. So it's a fascinating idea. Well, I got one more question for you. <laughs> I, I have to say, wait, this has been a jammed packed uh, more than half hour. So thank you for taking the time. <laughs> sure. Um, you know, we've talked about your book. We've talked about Rotary. We've talked about the Rose Bowl Parade, which I'll be super excited to, to see all you guys there. Um, but I do have one more question, and that's the question that uh, I ask everyone is their last question. And that is, if we're on an elevator, and I notice your Rotary pin, and I say, <laughs> oh, Rotary, what's that all about? Why would I want to be in Rotary? What would be your elevator pitch? To join That's a good question, too. And it's something that I share when I do a lot of the, the training for, for Rotary. There are 1.2 million members out there doing things that they love and do. When somebody asks you, you know, why are you in Rotary? Rather than talking about the organization, you should talk about your personal interest. Why are you in Rotary individually? Why are you willing to sacrifice each week your time, your energy, and your resources to stay in this great organization. If you can answer that one, then you've got a good, strong answer. My answer is this. As one person, I could change the lives of a million people around the world because of Rotary. It's because of the network I work with. It's because we work in a community where we help the underprivileged. It's because we are Rotary that we could bring water and sanitation to people in areas that we will never see or never know. We could change the whole world through an organization like this. What other group could you think of where you could impact a community and a world at the same time? That's my answer. Well, that sounds like a good elevator ride. Wade, thank you so much <laughs> for joining thank me. You. Thank you so much. I know you you literally got out of jury duty, had a ribbon cutting, fit me in, and now you have another river, ribbon cutting. Is that another um actually got a project meeting with haiti <laughs> oh oh that's right and now we're off to go save haiti so thank you for, for right. fitting in my my humble podcast in in between you, uh, <laughs> saving the world it was an honor to meet you i look forward to my new year's day cheering on that two minutes of that float uh going by and uh thank you for all you do to make uh rotary so much fun Gwen, thank you for having me and great podcast. I really enjoyed it. Hope everybody else enjoys it too. You do a great job. Oh, well, thank you so much. Well, thank you for the words of flattery there, Wade. But for the record, I feel kind of like an underachiever. 
from mayor to Rose Bowl to all those committees you have been on and are on, you definitely make Rotary a better place. So thank you so much for joining me. Hey, everybody in America, or for that matter, worldwide, January 1st, do check out the parade. It's going to be wonderful. And like I said, it brings back fond memories for me sleeping right there on Colorado Boulevard. Yes, that's right. I slept on Colorado Boulevard so I could wake up the next day to this amazing parade. Wade and all the volunteers, thank you so much for making this beautiful float. Uh, One of these days I want to help. I want to help. Who's with me? I would love to glue on seeds. Oh, I'd love it. All right. Until next time. Hey, tell others about the podcast. You can get it anywhere. Have them subscribe and review it if you'd be so kind. And if you'd like to get in touch with my more musical side, check me out on Greetings from America right there on Rotary Radio UK. Till next week. Take care of yourself and the world around you, and we'll hear you next time on the I'm a Rotarian podcast. Thanks, everybody. Talk to you soon.